Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Calling Tau City, turn on your radio. I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago. I got your message. It was a little harsh, you know. It's still a little hard for me to hear. Please take it slow. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring tales to terrify and far-fetched fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm waiting to be found. And I'm building rockets. Pointing them to the moon. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to Sure 540. I am. Your, I had to take a breath there. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hey, for 539 times, I've got that saying down a pat there and got me breathing wrong. <laughs> Gulpin. So, yes, 540. Hello, I hope everyone is, like again, like I say, fine and dandy. Today, we have coming up Queen Pain of the Wastes by Zach Chapman. And we have our very own... Amy H. Sturgis. We're looking back at genre history. That's all coming today's show. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. Now then, now then, now then, let's pull them up there. Big thank you. As you know, we were in a bit of a kind of rut. And it was the, the, the end of the month or the beginning of the month where all the payments come out. So we crashed and burned on Patreon. But we're up there again. We're doing all right there now. So... We are, now we are 410, last week we were 411, but it has been a rocky little road there this week, so hopefully, you know, do keep, you know, do help her, and I've got to be some big thank yous to, to mess up there, Russell Park, Russell sir, just went in two hours ago since I've started recording this, big thank you there Russell. Then we have Todd Marquis Butin. Todd, what? Have I done that? Am I getting that wrong, Todd? Todd Marquis Butin. Big thank you. David Moore. David, sir. David Moore. Young Mr. David Moore. Thank you so much. And Rose Andrew. Oh, Rose, man, you are a star. Rose, me lass. Thank you so much. And Marie, Maria Angelandro. <laughs> Oh, Maria. Aljandro. Aljandro, Maria. Is that right? Aljandro. I'll just... No, it's not, isn't it? Not. It's it's so far off the mark. It's just rather embarrassing, really. <laughs> but anyway, I'll try my best. Thank you so much, Maria. That was... It honestly means a lot. So if we could... If we could keep up the... Oh, there's my phone. Keep up with the good work on Patreon. That would be fantastic. Let us get... Into the main fiction. Like I say, it is Queen Pin of the Wastes by Zach Chapman. Originally pe- appeared in Futuristica. What a great name that magazine is. Volume 2. Go and have a little look at that ma- magazine. Fantastic. Zach Chapman is a movie critic, podcaster and author. His short fiction appears in Nature, Tales to Terrify and Writers of the Future. He also edited anthology Time Travel Tales, which includes stories by Catherine Wells, Sean Williams and young Mr. Robert Silverberg. He lives in Austin, Texas with his librarian wife, a cat, a lazy-eyed cattle dog and a brood of hens. And there's a link on there if you want to go and follow Zach. I'll put a link on there to his Twitter account. This story is narrated by Nicole Doolin. Nicole is a voice actor and writer of fiction, scripts and poetry. She has performed narrations for a number number of popular and award-winning podcasts, such as the No Sleep Podcast, Tales to Terrify, Farfetch'd Fables, and I'm sure... Starship Sofa. She also narrates classic literature on her own podcast, The Audio Literacy Odyssey. To learn more about Nicole, you can visit her site and like say NicoleDoolin.com. A link is on there. So the Starship Sofa is very proud to present. 
Queen Pin of the Waste by Zach Chapman, narrated by Nicole Doolan. A frill-necked lizard skittered across crescent dunes, never pausing long on the baked sand. Lee crushed the reptile under the heel of her boot. All that damn sand kept the impact from making the satisfying crunch sound she'd wanted. Lee relished the minute noises, the purring wind, the light footfalls, the cracking bone. Sighing, she bent down, scraped up the lizard's carcass, and tossed it to her red-and-white speckled hound. The lithe beast swallowed it in a single dry chomp. Good, maybe now you'll stop limping around. Sorry? Merck asked, startling her from behind. He was one of seven men who had been hovering at her heels for the past two hours, asking questions, cracking jokes, being jackasses. Talking to the dog. They'll be here soon? Sure, sure, very soon. Here, practically. You ready? Do I need to be? Lee asked. You said they ain't got nothing too dangerous on them that could hit us from afar. Oh, sure, sure, I did. Lark messaged me. Been patrolling the west. Like I said, nothing to fear. Small party, just five. You know. Hey, need anything? Merck, just hand me the sig and for the love of God, stop crowding me. Oh, sure, sure. The 556 five, or 515? I don't give a shit, Lee replied. Whatever punches out a bigger hole. He handed her a gun. It made an audible smack as the grip slapped against her glove. The familiar feel of polymer on leather gave her a natural grin. Theo got the rovers ready for the ambush? Yes. Do you want to ride shoddy or drive? Merck asked. Shotgun is fine. Huh? You want a shoddy? Simmons asked, unrolling the window as the car pulled up. Shut up. She hopped in the gray, battle-scarred vehicle. Her hound automatically boarded the back, and Merck followed. He squeezed in between the shedding beast and Tucker, an incompetent man in blue face paint who often complained of never being allowed to use the clan's high-powered rifles. Out of her clan, Tucker was easily the worst with snipes. The others piled in another scanty car, and together they rode across the windswept dunes, stirring up motes of tan clouds that rose impossibly high and blurred the waning sun. This would be the second encounter of the day, and the first had gone so well, yielding food, ammo, equipment, even a bit of gas. Scavenging was a mighty fine way to pass the time between the grander escapades. She forced her smile away. It wouldn't do for the others to see her grinning like a maniac. As they came upon the five, Lee twirled her finger and pointed ahead. Message Theo. Tell him to go around past him. Don't want them scrambling away once we attack. From the rear view, she saw him nod. She checked her ammo, tapped the mag, snapped her goggles on. You boys ready? Shedding their nebbishness, they all whooped in agreement. Lee hit her compact sig rifle in between her knees, rolled down the window and leaned out. Her hair snapped in the dry wind. Hey, you there. Need any help, friends? The travelers seemed to slump as Simmons pulled the car up near them. Two wearing yellow bandanas hesitated, waved wearily, and started for the car. A third attempted to run, yelling, Trap! Hey, they popped! Lee said, bringing the rifle up out of the window and sighting in on the running man. She pulled the trigger and a lead slug hamstrung the fleeing man, sending him rolling back down the dune. Tucker, Simmons, and Merck were already out of the car, yelling, firing warning shots, corralling their prey. Ahead, Theo and his boys kicked up sand, steadying their guns on the fire from a cautionary distance. You never could be too careful in the dead wastes. We don't want to hurt you, we just want to talk, cool, right? Lee said to her five bound prisoners. The one with the gunshot leg struggled against his restraints. Brown hair and eyes, no tattoos. Hardly a sunburn. He looked like a real low-level guy. The two yellow bandanas nodded eagerly. The others said nothing. Lee continued. We're looking for recruits. People with guts. And good personalities. Go to hell. You're wasting our time, said the wounded one. Theo smashed the butt of his rifle across the guy's face. Okay, scratch him off the list. Lee said, moving closer to the others as if to examine them. I, I recognize you, 
The wounded one reached out with his bound hands, pointing, grinning. She's a cripple. You can tell by the way she walks. You boys really taking orders from a cripple girl? You're pathetic. You're a cripple, Theo said and smacked the man's other leg with his rifle. The yellow bandanas looked at each other. One of them said, Really, we aren't with him. Only hooked up two days ago. Don't really know him. The second jerked a thumb at the others and shrugged. That's good, Lee said, not taking her eyes off the one she'd shot. Merck, can you deal with these two? Merck dragged them by their restrained hands away from the group, took out a large, gleaming knife, and sliced off their bonds. Simmons and Tucker jogged over to watch, then sat cross-legged on the sand. Merck tossed his big knife at the foot of one, pulled out another much smaller blade and kicked it over to the other. Only got room enough for one banana bandana wearing Lee's gang. Let's see what you got. Seriously? One gaped as he picked up his knife. You practically gave that guy the buster sword. How is that fair? What am I supposed to... Tough cookie, senor, Simmons said. It was over quickly. The bandana with the bigger knife won. The other's limp body disappeared, leaving the knife and a few minor pieces of equipment, including his yellow bandana. Simmons slapped the new recruit on the back. Not bad. What's your name? Banana? I like banana. We'll go with that. See how long you last. A gunshot blasted through the desert, then another. Merck looked over his shoulder toward Lee. Two of the prisoners fell to the sand. Their bodies disappeared a second later. Guess you're the only one to make the cut, Banana. Lee's pretty picky. Just don't be a dick, you'll be fine, Tucker said and slid down the dune to off their final prisoner. Ignoring his bleeding leg, the prisoner chanted insults with his eyes closed, calling Lee a cripple and worse. You'll get what's coming to you. I've seen you before, he said, then continued raving as loud as he could. I bet we've permadeathed him before. Can we just do it again? Theo asked. No, Lee said. He's already such a low level, it's what he wants. He'll just start a new character tonight and go on trolling. Fresh slate. No, screw this asshole. Let's bu- Lee paused for 15 seconds, her eyes completely blank. Her hounds looked up at her confused. Their prisoner went on shouting. Then the vacancy disappeared. Sorry, damn it, Dad's almost home. Bury this ass hat. I want him to have to wait until this avatar dies naturally, or he contacts Deadway support, or pays for another character slot. You're wicked, Simmons said. Oh, go on worshipping her, the prisoner said. Go on with this cripple. Look at the way she walks. She's probably some dude in a wheelchair in his parents' basement. Fat, pimply. No, she sent a pic. She has purple hair, I-R-L, Simmons said. Don't argue with him. Just bury his ass. And Christ, stop saying abbreviations. Simmons, I might see you on later tonight. Probably tomorrow, though, she said as she started the 40-second log-off process that kept cheaters from disconnecting in PvP areas. T-T-Y-L. Shut up. Her eyes still closed, Lee focused on wiggling her toes. Nothing. Feet, no. Legs, nothing. Nope. Still crippled in the real world. Just minutes ago, she could walk and run and kick and jump in dead wastes. Albeit with odd ticks she'd formed from never having walked in the real world, now she was restricted to the chair. She flipped her hearing aids on, although she could not hear Dad shut the door over the painfully loud screech of feedback. She could smell the instant he came home. Grass, gasoline, and cigarettes. Sighing, Lee fiddled with her aids until she got the settings right, just in time to dully hear her father's jovial voice. Hey, girly girl, I'm home. And I bought some vanilla almond ice cream. You eat dinner yet? Just a sec, she called from her dim room as she scraped the VR nodes off her temples and tossed them on top of a white tower rig decorated in vinyl dead waste stickers. She wheeled out of her room and joined her father for dinner. Lee studied his hands as they ate. Cracked, calloused yellow, scabbed brown, dirt under the fingernails. Her hands would never be like that. Well, 
that wasn't entirely true. She did have calluses from gripping her wheels and the inevitable chipped fingernail polish that revealed all the cheap colors underneath. Her dead waist character had perpetually dirty hands just like her father's, and flawless fingernail polish, a perfect VR anachronism. Her dead waist character didn't quite have Lee's shade of purple hair, and the side cut ran a bit too high. It didn't have her broad shoulders either. Despite his grimy hands, her father squeezed his rare burger, dribbling ketchup across his sweat-stained shirt, and took large bites between mentioning how he found a new potential bonsai tree from an old stump in a client's yard. The client had wanted it dug out, so he kept it. He'd pick up a pot for it tomorrow after work and stick it with the other sad attempts at bonsai trees on their tiny apartment porch. After the buzz of his second beer, Lee's father spoke of buying her cochlear implants that she knew they couldn't afford. She preferred a helper dog anyways, a big red speckled thing with pointed ears and sharp teeth, like her hound from dead wastes. Yes, something she could take to school, but they couldn't afford that either. After his third beer, after the television was on, he complained of hippies, Luddites, and politicians, of their protests and lobbying and bullshitting against the research that could lead to her standing up out of her wheelchair. He was lovable but predictable. Lee wheeled to her room and logged back on, but all of her friends were offline. Lee felt the vibrations of Rod flicking the back of her chair but said nothing. Since class started, he'd been at it with his damn stylus while Coach Davis taught health from a tablet that might have been as old as her. She considered reaching back, snagging the pen out of Rod's hands and breaking it, but that would piss Davis off and the coach and her father had been jock buddies growing up. Lee liked him despite the pathetic glances he gave her on occasion. At five till, Davis turned and dismissed her from class with a nod. She was halfway to history when the first bell sounded and the rest of the school piled out of their classrooms. The hallways became a murmur of flesh and bony elbows and curses and laughs and shoves. She thought her hearing aids had been adjusted properly, but at that moment the feedback grew as loud as the angry hall. She reached up to make an adjustment and her hand was slapped hard. Stunned, she let her arm slump. Another slap came harder this time knocking her head sideways and sending her right hearing aid off. Asshole, she said as she turned. She was slapped, softer this time, with something sticky and hard. It clung to her ear, its rough edges scratching her painfully. Had someone wadded up paper and stuffed it in her ear? She quickly gained her bearings, but the assailant had disappeared amongst the sea of passing torsos, as lost as her hearing aid. Bastard! Her ear felt hot. It was tape, a nasty ball of the stuff. It tugged at her ear and her hair as she pulled it until it was free. In anger, she tried to fling it, but the stupid tape clung to her fingers. She snatched it with her other hand and... What was this? Something small and black. A miniature hard drive lay wrapped in the curls of clear tape. Lee twirled the tiny drive between her index and thumb completely immune to her chemistry teacher's murmuring lecture, only in part due to her missing aid. A strand of her purple hair stuck to the drive, caught in the tacky residue that the peeled-off tape had left behind. Twice she had fought off the temptation of sticking it in her personal tablet to see what mysteries it might hold. Could be viruses, malware, Trojans, fishing programs, or maybe just jokes, memes about wheelchairs and hearing aids. After much consternation throughout chemistry class, the bell rang, signaling the end of the school day. She took it to the library, found a computer in a lone corner, held her breath, and plugged it in. No blue screen of death. No instant malignant windows full of obscenities. Only the familiar chime of the school's computer reading a new device. Lee exhaled and opened the drive. It was empty, but for a single file with a .txt extension. She read the file. To the queen of the waste, kill your character or lose more than a hearing aid. Kiss the scorpion, locked dodgers, washers, venom hits, nuka-cola, and a hundred other less exciting bottle-cap betting mini-games buzzed all around Lee's clan 
as they sat at a round table in Shutker's hotel and bar, an enormous PVP safe zone. Hound lay curled up at Lee's feet. She was staring at her palms, noticing the lack of detail. If this were all real, would her palms be as scarred and grass-stained as her father's? She tried not to think of the black drive, sticky from the tape. Then Banana Boy stabbed him in the eye, like, four times. Like he hadn't just been playing with the guy for hours. Hardly lost a drop of HP. Nan is quick for a low-level kid, Simmons told a member of the clan who hadn't been logged on last night. Banana nodded. Merck smacked the back of his head. Shut up. I gave you the bigger blade. You were supposed to win. I'd have won anyway, Banana said. This is my third character. The mouth on him, Tucker said, his back turned to the table, tossing a washer at a board. Lee faced Merck, nudged him, and whispered, sending him a private message only he could hear. Merck, you don't think I walk like a freak? The fuss of shuckers became a low-volume hum, similar to what she heard in the real world if she shut off her aids. Merck glanced at her, accepting their single-channel conversation. His voice was clear over all others. Freak? No. Princess? Sure. You strut about with royalty, my liege. Can you tell that I'm, you know, in a wheelchair? You're the only one I've officially told. The others suspect, I'm sure. They don't care. I don't care. No big deal. It's cool. What would you guys be up to if I stopped logging on? Or what direction would you take the clan? Dunno, Merck said. Continue humbling folks? Continue raids? Quests? Maybe grab a new member if any of us gets killed? That sort of thing. Why? You going on a trip? I went to Venice once, with my stepmom and dad. Sucked. It took away my virtual pack, made me look at bloody bricks and painted things for hours. I think I stood for eight hours straight. Sucked. I wouldn't know. About trips, or... He looked like he regretted the words as they came out. Either. At dinner, Lee told her father she lost her hearing aid. She could hear him, mostly, but not when he turned the television on and tried to talk over it. He wasn't angry and hid his disappointment well. She didn't mention how she'd lost it, the tape or the drive. She'd tossed the drive after reading the plain text file and was sure that would be the last of it. Just a stupid joke, and she'd been pranked many times. This time was just like the others. If it wasn't, well, she had a miniature bottle of pepper spray in the armrest pocket of her chair. After they ate, she logged back on to dead wastes. With her crew, Lee cleared two raids, an instance, and finished the night with a round of sweeping low-level scrubs off the outer plains near Shuckers. Easy. It got her mind off the drive. The next morning, during second period, Lee discovered her backpack, which hung behind her chair most of the time, had been slashed open. She'd lost her makeup bag, likely taken by the vandal. Stuffed in its place were a dozen plastic bags, twisted, balled up, and wrapped one inside of the other. At the center of the Russian doll mess lay another drive. She tasted acid in her mouth, and she thought of her pepper spray defensively. This time she couldn't wait for the library. She jammed the thing into her personal school-issued tablet. Her tablet took a moment to read the drive. Finally, when the icon became visible, she swiped at it. But her command wasn't registered. Her tablet froze. And there was that acid in her mouth again. The screen went blue, catching the attention of several students sitting near her. She couldn't hear them shifting in their seats, but she felt their eyes on her. Then the tablet read, Delete your character, or bang, bang. Sound erupted from the miniature speakers on the tablet, weapons being fired. It was so loud the little speakers cracked and hissed with distortion. In the quiet room, it was as if a bomb went off. Everyone stared as she frantically swiped the screen, trying to shut off the noise. She pounded at it. Nothing. Mrs. Anders was watching hand on her hip, a half-drawn diagram forgotten. Lee. Mrs. Anders looked down over her horn-rimmed glasses. Do I need to take that from you? Shut it off. I didn't. 
I'm not doing it. It just started making noise. I can't control it. The stupid thing won't turn off. She could feel heat in the tips of her ears, knew her face was crimson with embarrassment. Lee, what's gotten into you? I'm sorry, I can't... Lee sat between the IT and vice principal's office, waiting. A troublemaker in a ratty gray hoodie also awaited his fate, staring with red-rimmed eyes at her and what she held tightly in her arms. The tablet had not shut off, or stopped rattling off gunshots. After the most embarrassing five minutes of her life, Mrs. Anders finally understood the noise was truly out of Lee's control. Together, while half of the class snickered, Lee and Mrs. Anders wrapped the tablet in Mrs. Anders' coat to quiet the damn thing, and she was sent off to the IT office to have a new one issued to her. The shot speakers vibrated in her hands, and she wondered if they were making enough noise for other students to hear. A student leaving the IT office held the door open for her. Lee mumbled her appreciation as she passed him. She didn't mention the drive or yesterday's harassment. What could IT do? Suggest a crazy stalker app? Download an anti-bully program? The tablet was snatched away from her and frowned at by three men whose knowledge on technology likely did not surpass her own. They handed her a battered-up replacement. When Lee left IT, they were still scratching their heads. As she rolled out, she heard the vice principal scolding the hooded creep. Through the open door, their eyes locked. Miss Friedman, the vice principal, walked past a slouched figure in her office. James keeps sitting. I'm not done with you. Falling asleep in class. Up all night playing that violent game. Miss Friedman lowered her voice as she met Lee in the waiting room. Lee, still having trouble getting to your classes on time? What's with the purple hair? You aren't in middle school anymore. Lee rolled her eyes. I'm not tardy any more than normal. Usually leave five minutes before the bell. My hair? It's to give them something to look at. That's good you're getting to class on time. I was worried about that. Your hair, yes. I'm sure it's a little distracting to the students. Not as much as my chair. I'll see you later. Lee, wait. A hall monitor found a hearing aid in the hallway. I think it was stepped on. It looks like you are missing one. Is everything okay? Miss Friedman had been right. Lee's aid had been stepped on. It worked, but hissed occasionally with feedback. Her dad mentioned the noise later that night, sighed and said they'd still need to get her a new one. The next day in first period, another drive appeared in the center of her handicap-accessible desk. She threw it away. At every class, a drive awaited her, perfectly centered on her desk. She asked, but not one teacher had seen or remembered who had left the drives behind. She threw them all away. Then it was the weekend, and she was not troubled by the physical presence of psychotic stalkers or drives, that she knew of anyway, but delete your character permeated the back of her mind. A burnt-in image on a dying tablet. Bang, bang. She spent her time on dead waste leading her clan in slaughtering scrubs and power-leveling banana, while her father smoked cigarettes and wired juniper branches, trying to mold them into the perfect bonsai trees. More out of kindness than curiosity, she asked him how they were coming along. He said that in two months his best might sell for enough to cover the cost of new aids. Lee lied, telling him the feedback from her hearing aid didn't bother her. Sunday night he approached her, a level three scrub hot off the starter desert, wearing a sun-bleached rancher hat and a sagging rucksack. She was just outside Shutker's safe zone. Minutes ago, the others had logged off to work on homework. Lee was about to do the same when he whispered, Howdy, girl. It was a private message. Hound was growling, his speckled coat rising along his spine. His AI had learned her well. Piss off, unless you want to die. I'm about to log off. The queen pin still alive. That isn't a good thing for Miss Lee. You're... Who? The one behind the drives? The creep. She tried to look hard. Yes and no. Not really.
It's not just me. There's dozens of us. One for every drive, at least. Liar, she said. He was trying to make her paranoid. Delete your character. You wouldn't want a wheelchair accident. Roll too close to the stairs at school and... She put three bullets in his head before another word came out. He was slow, his defense non-existent compared to her maxed gear. His body vanished before it hit the ground. Lee didn't bother looting the bag. Just as the digital sun set over Shuckers, Lee logged off. She'd have to tell the others tomorrow. In Davis's class, Rod picked at Lee's backpack. She attempted taking notes on her tablet, but Davis was boring and Rod was distracting. She felt him switch from drumming on her water bottle to tugging at her zippers. She was about to turn and say something when he fully unzipped the backpack's front pocket. A cascade of black plastic fell to the floor. He looked at her stunned. Apologetically, Davis did not look up from his lesson. What is all this? Rod said loud enough for her to hear. She rolled back and felt plastic crunch under her. Hundreds of black drives littered the floor all different sizes and makes. Rod was out of his seat trying to clandestinely clean up the mess. He scooped up two handfuls of drives and dumped them on her lap while mouthing apologies. Numb, she accepted them. Class went on without her. Lee regained her bearings as the bell rang. She waited for all of the students to leave before dumping the drives from her backpack into the trash. Davis looked at her quizzically scratching his stubble and saying nothing. She bit back words, confessions of her stalker and not wanting to delete her character. How had the creep snuck that many of drives in? When could he have done it? Before class? Maybe she'd have heard him but for the broken aid. But she should have felt him. Lee decided tonight, as her father made them BLTs or ordered Chinese delivery, she'd tell him, But Lee's father did not come home at five, or six. Maybe he was digging up another juniper to add to his collection, though she found that unlikely, since the sun was setting fast. Waiting irritated her, so she signed on. Lark, Simmons, and Banana joined up with her at Checkers. Banana's health was critical. Apparently, he almost got wasted in a PVE area. His gear was torn to hell, and he was completely out of ammo. She laughed. (laughs) This the first VMO you ever play? No. Banana, we ought to frag your ass right here. You're worthless, Simmons said, tugging on his yellow bandana. I'm just a low level. Yeah, that's not all. Hey, Lee, Simmons turned to her. You want to go on a mini raid in Lark's car while we wait for Merc to get on? I suppose... Laughing felt good, yet underneath there was an uneasiness. She wished she'd turn the lights on in a room before logging on. Once she logged off, the whole house would be dark. Once she got off, she'd have to tell her dad about the stalker. He might freak on her. They loaded up. Lark drove. Out of all of them, he had the best driving stats, and it showed. Rough tundra became blacktop. Lee's aiming was smoother, her shots more deadly while Lark was behind the wheel. An even ride, ten full clips and a good crew. Despite herself, she smiled. In half an hour, they had gunned down an army of thug AIs and looted their corpses. The drops were crap, so everything was given to Banana. Boys, I think my dad's home. I'll try to get back on, but later, after ten or so. Only if he falls asleep. Ah, shit, really? Simmons said. I guess we're stuck babysitting the scrub. Don't leave me here with him, I'll kill him. Lark looked too serious. Come on, guys, I'm not all that bad. Shut up. She started the process of logging off. She'd heard something. Her dad closing the door, maybe. It was hard to tell with her busted aid. Then she was off. Too soon. The logout process hadn't cleared. She cursed. The power to her tower was cut off. Power failure? Maybe. Unlikely. The thing had a billion fail-safes she'd designed herself. She cursed again. Her character would be vulnerable for two minutes, the penalty for disconnecting before properly logging out. And her father, he was... 
She could smell no gasoline, no cigarettes, no freshly cut grass. Lee became aware that half the cords to her tower were severed. Acid filled her mouth, panic. She tried to focus on the shadows, but everything was too dark, too twisted. She slapped off the VR nodes as quietly as she could. The apartment was as silent as a crypt. The creep was here, and she couldn't see, and she couldn't hear. And if she moved or breathed, would she make too much noise? Without thinking, she reset her aids. A blare of pain burst from her right ear. The damn hearing aid crackled with feedback. Panic held her for a moment. Then she yanked it out and threw it through the open door into the short hallway. Faintly with her left ear, the one with the good aid in it, she could hear the crackling of her aid in the hall. A thud, then silence. A voice too muffled to understand. Shadows moved outside the door, writhing black silhouettes alive with danger. Now another voice. A second voice. How many voices? Hushed, angered. Shadows curled from in the hall and entered her room. She wheeled back. A shaking hand slid from the darkness and jammed on her brake. Where were you going? Don't you need help, friend? There were three of them. As her eyes adjusted, she recognized the one holding the frame of her chair. She'd seen him wearing a hoodie outside the vice principal's office. James. Rod was standing behind him. The other boy looked familiar. Maybe she'd passed him in the halls. See if she's died from the two-minute penalty, James said as he rocked her chair, the brake still locked, ruining her rubber tread. Get off me, Lee yelled. James, take it easy, man. It's not like she can hurt you. She recognized the voice but couldn't place it. The teenager had acne on his round face. She was sure she'd seen him somewhere at school. He pulled out a tablet and tapped on it for a minute, its light filling the room. Deadway's tracker app shows she's logged out successfully. Just easy, man. Once her character is dead, she will have to start over like the rest of us. I'll track her down every time and make sure she never survives past level five. Get out of my house now, Lee said. James leaned heavily on her armrests, smiled, then cuffed her across the cheek. Rod laughed. The familiar pimply one looked worried. Come on, man. No need to get rough. We'll just make her delete the character and get the hell out of here. You know what I'm thinking, James said. I'm thinking that's not the only reason I came. Got some unsettled business, her and I. She's killed me three times. Death of her character ain't enough, I think. Not my fault you suck at the game, Lee said, trying to look hard. He hit her again for that. She could scream. Maybe a neighbor would hear. There was the pepper spray in her chair's armrest. She just needed a distraction. But James moved forward and gently grabbed her throat. James, what are you doing? She finally fully recognized the voice. Merc. It was him. He'd played with her in game for months. Must have known who she was. Seen her in school. The bastard had never said hello, and now he was a part of this? We just need her to delete her character. After that, I'll be head of the clan. You can make new characters and I can power level you safely. Shut up. It was never about that for me. Her clan, your clan. That's your business. Mine's about getting even. Merc. She choked for dramatic effect. How could you? Sick girl, it's no hard feelings. I told him just to swat you. My dad said he used to do it all the time. James looked at him. Shut up about swatting. I tried it. Jack shit happened. Top chick gamers are in some flag-protected database. Don't think you've got the stomach for what comes next. I'm gonna make her roll over that tower until it's smashed to bits. That should keep her off dead waste until next Christmas. Until her daddy buys her a new tower. Before then, his poor ass will be mowing out alone for her next hearing aid. She glared at them. If she could only get him on her side. Mark looked away. Whatever. James, just make sure her character's gone right. She'll be offline until Dead Waste 2 comes out. Mark slipped out of the room.
James snorted. <laughs> Weak. Rod, leg that tower over here. Cool, Rod said. The closet gamer jock commands his pot dealer with a bad back to do the heavy lifting. Lee cleared her throat before James could speak. <clears throat> Simmons, Lark, even Banana, they know. Leave now and I'll tell them not to say a word about this misunderstanding. They'll follow my orders. Rod stumbled away from the tower in a panic. James steadied him. Relax, Rod, James said. Lee, do you expect me to believe you were texting them this whole time? I've been looking right at you, idiot, making sure you're not trying anything smart. She fought hard not to shake as she shrugged her shoulders. Yeah? What about my backup webcam? Did you check that too? She pointed at the dust-covered webcam perched above her monitor. She'd never used it. Merck would have known. Not these idiots. They turned and it was just enough time for her to draw the bottle of pepper spray. Idiots, that thing doesn't work, Lee said. But this does. As they turned back, she sprayed a line of venomous liquid across their faces. Double kill. They both dropped, shrieking loud enough to make her aid flare with feedback. The spray was so strong that just being in the room began to burn her lungs. Down the hall, the door slammed. Lee, what's going on? Are you okay? Dad's home, Lee thought. Perfect timing for him to take out the garbage. Two nights later, she was back on. Her cut power cords had been reimbursed. Immediately, Lee was talking with her clan outside of Shuckers. Lark and Theo had pulled up their cars, and Simmons and Tucker were loading up guns, frags, and plenty of ammo. You realize, Simmons said, you're gonna have to tell that story another 100 times before you satisfy the gang? Nice trick with the webcam. Please tell me you said something like, Say cheese. I'll remember it for next time I kick their asses. I-R-L. You are a badass in real life. Damn. So those two idiots you and your dad slammed are in juvie? Shit, Simmons said, dumping a handful of magazines into the back seat. And he brought home the paperwork to get you a damn service dog? Cooler than cool. Your dad's a badass. Must be where you get it from. It'd be scary but cool to meet him sometime. IRL. He gets it from me. All he did was take out the garbage after I finished them off. So, you'd want to do that? Hang out outside of dead wastes? We already spend a lot of time together online, so why not? Lee was silent for a while, then nodded. So you really think we'll find Merc? His dumb ass is somewhere on this server. He can't hide in Shuckers forever. You're right. Merc can't hide in real life either. I know what his face looks like. If you're planning something, I'm in. We'll see, Lee said. For now, we'll keep it in game. Suit up, banana. You look like a level three scrub. I'm putting a bounty on Merc's head. You could use the cash, am I right? I want him alive, though. We bury his ass. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is young Mr. Zach Chapman. Zach's, <laughs> what can I say? A big thank you, big thank you. And Nicole, what can I say? What am I doing that silly noise for? Thank you so much, Nicole. Just nails it. Nails it indeed. Wow. Thank you. So, yes, you know what I'm going to say, Amy, are you there, Amy? It is Amy H. Sturgis with her looking back at genre history. Ames. Hello, my friends. It's time for another look back into genre history. In my last segment, I talked about three of the novels that have been nominated for the Best Novel category for the 1943 Retro Hugo Awards. Since Hugo Awards were not given in 1943, we're making up for lost time, and those will be presented at this year's 2018 Worldcon. Just as a recap, we talked about three of the nominees last time. First, Beyond This Horizon by Anson MacDonald, which is a pseudonym for American science fiction great Robert Heinlein. 
Darkness and the Light, by Olaf Stapleton, UK giant of science fiction, and Donovan's Brain, by German author by way of Hollywood, Kurt Siedmack, which I called the science fiction gift that kept on giving because it has been adapted so many times. So today I thought we could complete our discussion of these books. Look at the other three nominees for Best Novel. The next one on our list is really no surprise at all. It is Second Stage Lensman by E.E. E. Doc Smith, which was originally published in serial form in astounding science fiction from November 1941 through February 1942. E.E. E. Doc Smith, sometimes called the father of space opera, was from the U.S. He was really a doc. <laughs> he was a Ph.D. in chemical engineering, and he was an American food engineer. Yes, you can do that. And he specialized in pastry mixes and donuts. Mmm, donuts. And he also wrote several very influential series, including the Skylark series and the Lensman series. In fact, in 1966, there was a Hugo Award given for Best All-Time Series, up until 1966, and one of the finalists for that series was E.E. E. Doc Smith's Lensman series. It ultimately lost to Isaac Asimov's Foundation series, but it was a finalist. The Lensman series as a whole includes six novels and a sequel. Triplanetary, 1948, First Lensman, 1950, Galactic Patrol, 1950, Grey Lensman, 1951, Second Stage Lensman, 1953, Children of the Lens, 1954, and the sequel, The Vortex Blaster, in 1960. Most of these novels were the compiled stories that had been published in serial form in amazing or astounding stories, uh, depending. You may be wondering at the publication date there that Second Stage Lensman was published as one book in 53, but hey, it's up for the 43 Hugo Award, but that's because it was originally serialized in astounding in 1941 and 1942. The series begins about two billion years in the future, and it's a kind of space police story, if you will. There are the good guys, the Arisians, and the bad guys, the Edorians, and the good guys know that if they're going to fight and win over evil, they've got to develop over a long period of time a special civilization through intentional breeding lines on selected planets, and Earth is one of those planets. And ultimately, these breeding lines will create the kind of beings who can fight and win against the Edorians. And part of their arsenal is the Lins, which allows the wearer to tap into extra abilities, mental abilities like telepathy, for example. You may recall that some time ago when I was talking about influences on George Lucas, I mentioned that the Lensmen were an inspiration, one of the things that he worked into uh, his idea, for example, of the Jedi. So we get into Second Stage Lensmen, the fifth book in the series. That's the one up for this Retro Hugo Award. It is the last of the Lensman books to feature Kimball Kinnison as the most powerful Lensman who serves on the Galactic Patrol. And it also features the first woman Lensman, Clarissa McDougall. Its main thrust is following sort of the second generation of Lensman, those who have gone through the advanced training that the main character, Kinnison, underwent in the previous book, Galactic Patrol. And this training allows them to control the minds of others and have special senses of perception. And it makes them very good spies and information gatherers in their fight against the baddies. 
So this is your most traditional, straight-up space opera representative on the ballot. And I say that, A, not in a pejorative way, and B, with the understanding that I'm not really comfortable with the space opera label, actually. I don't really find it satisfactory, but uh, used the way it's normally used, sure, this fits. It's also the only work of the six novels that represents an installment in a larger series. And next up is something completely different. In fact, the whole other end of the spectrum. Not only was it not an installment in a popular series, it wasn't even published during the author's lifetime. The author is Austin Tappan Wright, uh, who was a University of California Berkeley Law School professor. And the novel is I-S-L-A-N-D-I-A. Now, this is a real name, but depending on where you are in the world and to which real place you're referring, this can either be pronounced Islandia or Islandia. And to be perfectly honest, I don't know which one Wright was going for. Uh, the perils of being an introvert historian. <laughs> lots of lots of names I've read and haven't heard spoken. So since I do know that you can go either way in the real world talking about real places, I'm just going to go with Islandia because I find that more aesthetically pleasing. So apologies if I'm wrong. At any rate, this is a fascinating, in fact, the whole story behind the story is fascinating to me. In a lot of ways, there are parallels with the way that J.R.R. Tolkien put together the Lord of the Rings and his other Middle-Earth cycle stories. Essentially, this project, this world that Wright created was a lifelong project of his, begun when he was just a boy. He created this incredibly rich, dense world that had its own history, it had its own geography, it had its own art and literature, and he filled in all of those spaces over his entire life. The place that he was imagining, this Islandia, was in his imagination, set somewhere near the Antarctic, and it did relate to our own real world. His story is set in the real world of the time, but in this imaginary country. It's described as being at the tip of the Karain semi-continent, near the unexplored wastes of Antarctica in the Southern Hemisphere. The citizens imposed a law limiting the access of the outside to their world, to their country. Only 100 visitors at a time could visit Islandia. In Wright's work, one of those visitors is an American named John Lang, and he is the point-of-view character from whose perspective we see this world, which is quite utopian, although just calling it a utopia probably doesn't do justice to the complexity of the place and society that Wright creates. Now, the original version that Wright wrote can be found now at Harvard, but it wasn't published until 11 years after the author's death. And one of the things I find fascinating about the whole story is that everybody who sort of touches this work catches Islandia fever. So first you have the author-editor Mark Saxton, who, with the agreement of Wright's wife and daughter, went into the text edited it down by about a third, and published it in 1942. But it really got under his skin, and so he ultimately published three works of his own, prequels slash sequels, one in 1969, one in 1979, one in 1982, dealing with the future and the past of Islandia and its relationship to the larger world. Literary critic Basil Davenport wrote the introduction to Islandia, this original version published in 1942, and he got into it too. His introduction is 61 pages long. Like I said, this got under people's skin. Charles Finch would later write in The New Yorker that it was the forgotten novel that inspired homesickness for an imaginary land. Ursula K. Le Guin refers to Islandia, the kinds of love that are described in Islandia, in the Islandian language, in her novel Always Coming Home. What is Islandia like? In some ways, it is perhaps looking backward 
Although I don't think Wright would have bought that description in the sense that they are sort of agricultural, they're pastoral, they live in harmony with the land. They don't have the kind of technological progress that would have been seen in countries at the time outside of Islandia. Not because they can't. They do adopt certain things, for example, sewing machines they find worthwhile, but they're just genuinely not interested in other technological advances. For example, getting to someplace as quickly as possible um, is just not a factor for them. That's just not of interest to them. But while their technological status is perhaps somewhat primitive, uh, they're far advanced of Western culture in the way they deal with human emotion and psychology. Lang finds this world very tempting, very attractive. One of the plot points is that the world is trying to engage Islandia. Other countries want trade, they want immigration, and ultimately Islandia chooses to remain separate, chooses its self-isolation. Clute and Nichols' Encyclopedia of Science Fiction also makes the Tolkien comparison and explains that this is, quote, an extremely elaborate picture of an invented alternative society and its richly drawn inhabitants, end quote. So if you're looking to go someplace other in a really immersive kind of way, you ought to check it out. Now we come to the last book on the list, and again, something very different from the others. This one is by Irish author Dorothy McArdle. McArdle was not only a novelist, but a playwright and a historian, and is perhaps best known for her book The Irish Republic, about the Irish War of Independence and what followed. The novel that is nominated for the Retro Hugo was published in 1941 as Uneasy Freehold, but then published in 1942 in the United States as The Uninvited. And if that second title sets off bells in your head, that may be because it is the novel that was adapted into a very famous 1944 film, The Uninvited, classic supernatural horror film, directed by Lewis Allen, starring Ray Milland, Ruth Hussey, and Donald Crisp. The novel combines quite a few nice ingredients. You've got the gothic, you have mystery, you have supernatural, ghost, you have romance, lots of stuff going on. Let me read you the official description from the Reprint version from the Recovered Voices series by Tramp that has an introduction by Irish scholar, specialist in Irish literature and culture, Luke Gibbons, the 2015 reprint edition of The Uninvited. Quote, Brother and sister Roderick and Pamela Fitzgerald flee their busy London lives for the beautiful but stormy Devon coastline. They are drawn to the suspiciously inexpensive Cliff End, feared amongst locals as a place of disturbance and ill omen. Gradually, the Fitzgeralds learn of the mysterious deaths of Mary Meredith and another strange young woman. Together, they must unravel the mystery of Cliff End's uncanny past and keep the troubled young Stella, who was raised in the house as a baby, from returning to the nursery where something waits to tuck her in at night. End quote. The Times London Literary Supplement said of this, This is the ideal ghost story, and the author writes with such conviction as to make the story quite credible. Above all, she writes with a curious understanding of and pity for the ghosts, who are, quite obviously, as real to her as the flesh and blood people in her tale. End quote. So there's a lot to love here in this best novel category. So just to recap, we have added The Uninvited by Dorothy McArdle, Second Stage Lensman by E.E. E. Doc Smith, and Islandia by Austin Tappan Wright to the list that included Donovan's Brain by Kurt Siedmack, Darkness and the Light by Olaf Stapleton, and Beyond This Horizon by Robert Heinlein, writing as Anson MacDonald. The best novel category of the 1943 Retro Hugos. There's quite a bit of breadth there, genre-wise, I would say. 
I look forward to seeing the outcome of the vote. And I also look forward to joining you soon with something very different as we take another look back into genre history. Until then, thank you. And there you go, Amy. Amy Milas, and she's she's on top form just the other day there. She's already sent in Julys as well, so thank you so much, Amy. It means a lot. Thank you, lass. Right then, that is, what can I say, that is it. Have I got any gossip? I am loving Westworld, absolutely loving Westworld. Ran out a little bit of steam on Lost in Space. Devastated that Farscape has, seems to, not Farscape, man. The Expanse seems to have, have, have kind of fizzled out in that. Went to see Star Wars, the Solo, loved it, absolutely loved it. No complications there. Just a good film. I don't think it's going to set any box office records alight, mind you, because I went and it was and it was a Sunday evening. Went by myself. Yes, the son's doing revision there, and the daughter's just moved out, so and the wife did not want to. So I went by myself, and there was only three people, including myself, in. Man. So, have we kind of ran out of steam with Star Wars? Are we getting a bit kind of complacent and a bit sick? Not sick, but you know what I mean? Ah, not bothered with this one. <gasps> mm, dear me. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. I don't get out much. I've barely left the ground. I'm tuning into your transmissions. I'm moving and waiting to be found. And I'm building rockets and pointing them to the moon. But the work is going slowly. It won't get to you anytime soon. Can you? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio. I wanna talk to you. This signal's going light speed. By the time I get my say, I might already be on to you and on my way. But you're so far from here. And at best, I'm moving slow. So I'm waiting on your call at home with nowhere to go. Can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio. I want to talk to you. I want to talk to you. Myself on a radio wave, I might get to you someday. If books were rocket ships, I'd need only the will to fly. I'm still building word by word, and I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there.